What if there is another way to think about the word political than what is commonly understood? Or what if an aesthetic beauty were the means of escape from the cul-de-sac of non-communication? Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. You can find us at toddlittleton.net, pathological.com, or pathological.net. And we hope you enjoy the podcast, and we unreservedly ask that if you do, you'd help share uh, the podcast, get the word out to your pastor friends, your pastors, those of you interested in the intersection of pastoral work or pastoral ministry and theology. We've had some uh, good reviews and ratings over at iTunes. I want to thank you for those and want to ask you that if uh, you haven't yet made it your way over there, sign into your iTunes account, uh, leave us a five-star rating, and leave us a review. Now, you'll need to log into your iTunes account, and if by chance you fill that out and, and leave a review, uh, know that it, it won't show up immediately. So if you're kind of waiting and think refreshing that page a, a time or two might get you there, they hold those. Uh, I guess for some verification purposes, maybe to make sure it's a real-life human being, uh, check an IP address, not sure what, but it will eventually show up at least by the next day. So I want to ta- thank you already for um, those who have done so and those who those of you listening now who, who will run over there and do that. Maybe you've already been discouraged by trying, and I'm just going to ask you to go back and, and help us out. It helps us get found, and it helps us get the word out about this uh, hopefully uh, helpful resource for those of you who are interested in the intersection of uh, pastoral work, pastoral ministry, and theology. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to have Bill Walker. Uh, I met Bill uh, some time back, and we uh, I just think we struck up a really quick friendship. We share some interest. We both are Baptist by background, and he recently completed his uh, Ph.D. work, defended his dissertation, and now is Dr. Bill Walker. And currently he is the associate pastor at St. Peter's Church in Charleston, South Carolina, which is part of an Anglican diocese called Churches for the Sake of Others. Before that, he was an adjunct professor of Christian ethics, theology, and philosophy at the University of the Incarnate Word in San Antonio, Texas. As I mentioned, his background is Baptist, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship in particular, he did his undergraduate work at Baylor, did his graduate work at Truett Seminary, and did his Ph.D. at Claremont in Claremont, California. And when we met, we, we met and discussed, talked about uh, political theology. It has been an interest of mine for some time, and it's not necessarily uh, a very well uh, uh, studied or uh, talked about in in my sphere among my peers, uh, chiefly because a lot of people don't know that it's a subset of theology. It it, it in some ways is new and as, and in some ways it it's not. Uh, and so uh, Bill actually reflects on that a little bit in the podcast. And we take a, a wide ranging uh, approach. This is an introductory podcast, if you will. And I say introductory not uh, to uh, insult. And those of you who are familiar with political theology and, and will listen, but uh, really this is a setup to a second conversation we're going to have in a few months uh, when I finish working through uh, Bill's dissertation. 
and I'm, I'm terribly interested in uh, his constructive proposal and uh, subjects of neighborliness and resistance uh, as um, possibilities for the church in the era beyond or after Christendom. We'll talk about that uh, also a little bit on the podcast. So we do some defining of terms and have some uh, great conversation, I think. And I want to thank Bill for uh, taking his time out, and I do look forward to a follow-up conversation. Well, just stay tuned at the end. I'll have a couple of other things to, to note along the way. Um, but right now, I want to get, get over to the podcast and hope you enjoy. And if you do, remember to share the podcast. Uh, Bill, I'm glad to have you uh, on the podcast today. And um, one of the things that I was aiming for, in fact, really in conversations with you and Tripp and a few others last November, I kind of was able to hone what I really wanted to transition my podcast to, was to talk about um, pastor's theologian or the pastor theologian. And um, so since hearing you uh, and your presentation at, at Subverting the Norm, I, I've been looking forward to this conversation because it's not that any of my other interviews haven't been um, necessarily applicable to the idea of pastor theologian, but yeah. your content is peculiarly interested in, I think, that particular intersection. Is that fair? Yeah. I think so. I, I'm really drawn to the to the whole concept and vocation, you know, of, of integrating the two uh, disciplines and callings um, at the at the local church level, especially. I mean, I think you can be a pastor theologian, um, perhaps in a seminary setting too. But as a pastor right now, that's really what I'm I'm trying to develop. And so, yeah, that is. I think you're right. Well, before we give some, you know, chase down some, maybe some working definitions we could use for some of the things that we'll talk about in this conversation and, and in, in the one I'm hoping we have again, as we kind of maybe work a little bit deeper into some, some of these themes that we draw today, um, is, so where did, where, where did uh, this interest for you come? So if there is an interest in whether it's right now pastoring in the intersection of being in a pastoral setting in theology or maybe one day pastoring in a seminary setting. And I, I think everybody who would li be listening would understand what you're talking about there. What, tell us a little bit about you that might help us see where that interest uh, germinates from. Sure, yeah. Well, I, I think that my sense of calling to the ministry really came out of or feeling like I was um, being led to church leadership in some way um, was, was both out of just curiosity about my faith and wanting to grow deeper in an understanding of scripture and theology and all of that. But it was also through an experience just as a senior in college in a local church for the first time really belonging and participating in the church in a way that I felt like I was part of the community and not just, you know, attending on a Sunday with my parents or going to youth group because my friends were there or whatever. Um, I still consider myself to be a Christian most of my life, but the faith for me came alive when um, I was regularly meeting with other young adults who were trying to take their faith more seriously and ask questions about how to be a follower of Jesus, um, you know, when you're on your own and when you're having to have a real job and live as a professional and, um, you know, relate to other people um, 
in the way that, that Christ calls us to. And so the church for me just served me very well in, in trying to do that and embody that and having community support around me for it. Uh, people that I looked up to at that time were identifying gifts in me, I believe, for, for teaching and for leadership. And so I felt affirmed in the pursuit of that um, you know, vocation. Um, but then it was, it was later on in seminary when uh, I just loved uh, the theological inquiry you know, that I was getting to do. And I, I could sense that I had a knack for certain things about it. Um, later learned that my personality was really inclined to that and that um, you know, I could use it um, to, to serve the church and that it, it was one of my own kind of uh, worship languages, you know, ways that I found spiritual disciplines um, working out um, in my own life and, you know, my life. Loving God with all my mind. <laughs> right, right. That, can get, that can get one-sided, of course. But uh, for me, in, in the last five or six years, it's been just a way to uh, use my strength and, and hone it. Um, and so now I'm just asking more questions in the last two years, especially as I'm in the church um, in a full-time leadership position. I've had to integrate the two and do some translating. And, uh, you know, it can be a little bit jarring to transition back from a more academic setting into the local church. But it's been mostly very good and, and challenging and, and growing for me in, in the best sense, I think. Well, good. So um, did where, where in, in that background you've had in, in, in church um, and that community you describe, uh, what was that context? I'm, and I'm, I'm primarily interested in like um, part of the United States. What part of the United States? Because, you know, when we talk about pastoral theology and, and our actually involvement or investment in that, we kind of have to know our own context. So what would that be? Well, I, I'm from Texas. Okay. Uh, I grew up in Corpus Christi and, and Austin for, uh, from about age 13 on. And uh, went to Baylor University for college and Truett Theological Seminary. Uh, my The church context I was referring to actually was part of a, a fairly charismatic non-denominational church with some Baptist roots. Um that was new for me, and, and I didn't stay in that uh, tribe, but it was an important moment of mm-hmm. my growth because I did discover the kind of freedom and worship and um, some of the traditional trappings of my Southern Baptist background sort of fell away in, in a good way. But then, you know, now I find myself in an Anglican church, so you can see there's kind of been a, a journey and full circle there in some ways. But but no, that was, that was a time when... Um, there was an energy, there was an excitement, there was a passion and an urgency in church with young people around, um, you know, worship and so forth that I hadn't experienced. It had sort of been closed off for someone like myself. Right. tends to be pretty, like, um, reserved and um, introverted and so on. So this was, um, that was it was really um, formative for me to, to be in that community for a season. Yeah. Well, so if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about um, the role um, pastor theologian and you, you know you're kind of asking those questions and and working through that translating let let's let's kind of do a little uh, definition kind of uh, clarifying exercise. So I, I put out this morning, for instance, that you and I were going to be on a conversation, and a friend of mine, an older fellow. I say older, that sounds like he's a lot older. He's not a lot older than I am in case he listens. Um, you know, took, took po- political in the um, sense of 
um, I, I said this. He took political as in our current two-party um, uh, governmental system. But when we're talking in this context about political theology and its usefulness to a pastoral theologian, we're talking about political in a different context or with a different uh, nuance. How would how would you describe? Uh, how how would you? Uh, tell someone, translate for someone what that means? Yeah, yeah, it's a really important question because it is true. We, we hear the word political today in, in popular discourse and mainstream media and so forth, and our mind goes straight to, of course, all that's going on uh, in, the, in the news and so on with uh, the partisan political framework and choices about certain policy issues, even, even the best form of government, as you're seeing, two very different ends of the spectrum being represented at the mainstream level these days. And so that's where we go, thinking about politics. And so every every Christian, presumably, or pastor has probably some kind of political opinion, you know, about who should be in office and why and what the stance on an issue might be and so on. But when we say political theology, there there's a lot of background there. Um, there's kind of a contemporary tradition of political theology that we can talk about, um, but then there's a more classical one, and though it wasn't called political theology, um, you, you can go back to like even Aristotle's politics and ask, what did he mean when he used that word? Um, and, and I think it has something to do with uh, our understanding of human flourishing hmm. and how society uh, should be organized. How do we relate to uh, structures of power and so forth as as Christians in the world for uh, the um, furthering of human flourishing. So um, you can do that theologically, you can do it philosophically. Um, if you do it theologically for Christians, then it just means that we're asking the question of um, how society is organized on the basis of who we believe God to be and what we think God's will is in the world based on what has been revealed to us about God through Jesus and uh, the sweep of the Christian tradition. So it makes it a much broader and a more kind of anthropological question, too, um, for what it means to be human and what we need and what makes a life meaningful. Um, also, in that vein, you can say all theology is political. Mm. Um, and I think it just deprivatizes uh, you know, theology to call, it, to call it political. It just means that God's vision is always bigger than what uh, we think God desires for me by myself. Uh, you can't separate it out from um, God's hopes and dreams for the, for the world and for all of society. Yeah, you described that. I was thinking of a time when I um, uh, listened to Dallas Willard, um, and he uh, was talking about the way we frame big questions. And like, so what is one of those? And that's, of course, a philosophical, generally a phil- philosophical kind of framing. What are the big questions of life, that sort of thing? And he, you know, he he spent a good bit of time, at least in his later years, talking about, you know, what does it mean to be a good person or a good human being? And um, when he f- was finishing up uh, his last chapter in uh, the Divine Conspiracy, he made the reference to uh, community of prayerful love. In a sense, that was his description of political theology, um, in in the sense of. How is this community organized for the flourishing of everyone who participates in the community? And so I, I picked that up as, you know, uh, what you're describing 
that certainly should not be difficult for anybody to grasp. And others, hopefully we've helped with really good translation there as to what we mean by political theology. What I wanted to do is, is so you, you referenced Aristotle. We probably could talk about Plato's Republic and, and such. But what are some of the influences for you, even maybe even some contemporary figures that have influenced you thinking about political theology? Because you and I both know there are not many um, in you're not going to go to a Christian bookstore and find someone writing on political theology. Now, you might make it into an academic bookstore at at say Duke or Claremont or or Truett or or maybe a number of other places, and if you know what you're looking for, you might realize that Harawas is doing political theology, but maybe only if you pick up the politics of Jesus, right? So, what are some of those influences? Well, another really good and important question. I think my I stumbled into it, and I didn't know that the, that. Really, this kind of theology was a, was a subdiscipline of, of political theology. But my first encounter with it and exposure to political theology was probably just learning about, in a class I took in seminary, um, liberation theology, Latin American liberation theology, and all that it um, contributed and continues to how it continues to influence um, a lot of more um, academic theology, but hopefully not just academic theology, and. You know, liberation theology probably is most known for, and probably many listeners are aware of something about it, uh, at least some of the more popular connotations, that that there is a preferential option by God uh, for the poor and the oppressed, um, and that salvation is um, first and foremost a a social kind of salvation, and um, it has to do with liberation from bondage. And, you know, the Exodus story features prominently, therefore, in a lot of liberation theology, um, but but it happens also in um, a time when in Latin America you could you could uh, see how much because of where it was being done right, the, that the people who were writing um, this kind of uh, reflection on scripture and the tradition and God were seeing things differently because of their social location because of their context that is. Um, a new development in many ways. It's not that it had never been recognized, but it hadn't been emphasized or appreciated nearly as much. And there's a lot of philosophical backgrounds of that. People like Hegel and Marx certainly set the stage and they get uh, drawn on heavily by liber- Latin American liberation theologians for understanding um, how our uh, context is always shaping what we can even imagine, how we interpret scripture. Hmm. Um, you know, what, what would, uh, what would be an ex- an understanding of, of salvation in light of where we find ourselves and what our material circumstances are. But that's just um, one kind of political theology, and I think it's an important one that continues to, to influence me. But um, there are other people like Jürgen Moltmann and uh, Johann Baptist Metz and, and, and others, even Reinhold Niebuhr, I think, would be a significant mm-hmm. political theologian, uh, even though he's usually referred to as more like a Christian ethicist. Um, the most famous uh, name, though, associated with political theology as such is probably a figure named Carl Schmitt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his book was called, and he wrote it two editions, but the earliest one in the beginning of the 20th century, early 20th century, was political theology. And his main point in that book was that 
um, for him, all as a political theorist, and he was a very controversial figure because of his association with Nazism and so on, but he said all significant concepts of the modern theory of the state are secularized theological concepts. Hmm. And I've heard other people talk about that in, in similar ways. Um, one of my favorite contemporary political theologians is William Cadenau, and he says he has a book called Migrations of the Holy, you know, where he talks about the way that uh, the nation state has um, secularized theology. And you know, I think what he's saying and what many others have said about that is simply that um, there's whenever we're dealing with power and meaning and value and purpose and mission in life, there's typically an appeal to a transcendent authority or source. But a lot of times it gets uh, sort of hidden behind other rhetoric. Right. Uh, and so the question is, what is the transcendent referent in any political discourse that's um, maybe tacit or it's uh, sometimes even it becomes explicit? Um, and, it, and theology is, you know, talking about what is, uh, well, for us as Christians, it's God, but, but it can also be, that's why you have uh, atheistic philosophers doing political theology, saying, oh, this is just questions about what is absolute, uh, what is ultimate, what we care about most, what we worship, what we desire. Um, so Christians would call out certain transcendent references idolatrous, you know, because it isn't about God and, and so on. So um, in, in some of this talk, too, you hear about the difference between transcendence and eminence. And one of the things I'm interested in is how much... Um, we can think that we're just doing imminent thinking, but it's but it's it's a false kind of imminence um, because it's really a transcendent uh, way of talking about uh, power and values. But we act like it's just uh, politics or just you know material relations. Um, but really, we're we're saying something ultimate when we uh, let the the say the values of um, free market competition you know determine how we live. For example, so so I'm just curious about the way theology functions publicly in disguise, you might say, and that's kind of one of the chief questions of, of political theology. Yeah, and and I think probably would be helpful if we um, do just a quick little take on what we mean by material, um, because if if you're like me, and and maybe some of my listeners will have grown up like me, you know, material is really um, uh, uh, it, it would trigger the notion of materialism, you know, the, the idea of, you know, I'm collecting to myself all these things. And when political th theology uh, and that discourse talks about material, it has something altogether different in mind than... Am I heading out to Best Buy to buy, you know, the latest uh, Apple product, you know, while there's a critique certainly of, you know, free market capitalism in political theology and some of those veins, especially by the liberation theologians. When we talk material, we're talking about something different. Yes. Yeah, I think uh, material relations have to do with the way that um – we are connected to um, uh, yeah, our, our basic needs around us and how those uh, needs are organized and distributed and on, uh, you know, by whose authority, um, how do we have access to them and what are the 
what are the barriers of access to them and, and determined by who and what what histories you know led to certain uh, situations of advantage and disadvantage and inclusion and exclusion and access or not um, to things that are necessary for again you know human flourishing so whether it's just clean water right. um, or uh, health care or um, you know food that is that it, uh, not been just processed and mass produced or whatever it might be, um, certain political securities and um, uh, reliable government and um, police force and so on. These are all the dimensions of, of materiality um, and, and uh, how we are. Um, and you can go, go on from there and talk about more social and cultural factors that have a relationship to the material. But I think it just starts with um, some of the most universal uh, human needs and and how we um, are barred or granted um, enjoyment of those needs and at what cost to us. How much do we get to take that stuff uh, for granted? And what are the politics of that? You know, because of where and when we were born. Yeah. Um, would it be too reductionistic to suggest that the use of material in that vein helps strip away the often misapplied distinction between the spiritual and the real. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Um, I think, I think if we keep going with this notion of material, we realize how much uh, the material and spiritual are intertwined and they can't really be separated. And there's a spiritual dimension to all of material life, especially if, we take Jesus seriously and, and understand it not to be, as human beings, there's something about who we are intrinsically that, uh, you know, we're related to each other, not just mechanically, um, but but indeed spiritually, relationally, emotionally, and, and physically in a way that um, is not merely uh, material. <laughs> it is, it is, um, there's, a, there's a shared relationality between us because of, especially now what we know about the physical, literally the physical universe, um, all kinds of things are being exchanged between us right now, even as we're right. <laughs> a thousand miles away from each other. That, that is uh, equally spiritual and, and material. And I think it, I think that, uh, that um, helps us address some things, say from a positive. I'm also thinking of say, uh, and I'm most, ex I'm, well, all, I'm exclusively tied to a Southern Christian context and a, of a particular evangelical, you know, strain. And as such, any talk about the material in the way we're talking about it tends to be too this worldly and not enough other worldly because that becomes sort of some sort of uh, exposure of a deficiency, really, in uh, the way we've talked about faith and life and God's, you know, activity in the world and our relationship to it. Is that also yeah. a fair angle to approach that at or, or think about it? I believe it is, and I think it, it allows us to continue that um, neat uh, separation between politics and theology if we separate the material and the spiritual um, such that we, we really can, in good conscience, uh, go to church and even attend to our, our spiritual well-being, say, in our devotional time and in our prayer life and in our uh, close 
communal relationships while then also going into the marketplace or into the public sphere and having almost a different set of values operating around us and feeling okay about that. Um, it's a kind of distortion maybe of the, of the two kingdoms uh, thinking of, of Luther, um, where, whereby we just have to let these two all, you know, opposing sets of um, uh, meaning and purpose uh, live alongside of each other. And we don't need to try to let one interfere with the other too much. You know, if, if, it, if, uh, if it weren't for the modern separation that is so prevalent between the spiritual and the material, I don't know that we would need to add the adjective of political, you know, before theology right. in the first place. Um, now, I'm not to say that, you know, prior to modernity, there was never any overemphasis on personal salvation or, or religious piety or whatever. I think often there was. Uh, but I think that had more to do with Again, where theology, from where was theology getting done, um, materially speaking and politically speaking, uh, rather than, you know, from a place of being able to separate the mind from the body so well, right. uh, that we're able to often do in, in the modern period. Yeah, you, you introduced a, um, in that uh, a couple of important terms that often, again, get tossed around, especially when we're reading maybe or making observations from a more, um, I don't want to say academic, but maybe a, a more intentional look at um, eras and epochs. So you reference modern and postmodern. And, and I wanted to um, maybe get a very quick, uncaricatured um Kind of something someone could hang on because I want to I want to take something from there that you wrote about and kind of open up um, maybe some conversation about the events in Orlando and the public response to that and 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 here's what I'm thinking, uh, Bill. Um, if we could get kind of just a you you, you have a good way of, of of maybe giving a simple description of what we mean by modernity and then you could give a real simple one on postmodernity and. And when, and in my tribe, it, it's your old tribe. It, it's it's a caricatured, generally uh, uh, framing, and I'm looking for something you know maybe more not so uh, deeply academic, but something simple enough. And, and maybe this will be fair if I tell you where I'm going. Maybe that'll help. You actually pointed out in uh, your presentation that there is an effect of our experience in post-modernity that paralyzes conversation. In fact, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm not, maybe not quoting the entire sentence exactly as you wrote it, but there, there's something about that that I, I want to talk about. So with that kind of in mind, how would you help maybe someone who's listening go, what do you mean by modernity? Well, I'll try to say something about one important aspect of it. I think it is um, in particular, particularly important in theology. And just talk about modern theology, there's uh, a focus on or, or an um, assumption about our access to truth itself that is fairly objective, um, rationally um, understood, universally accessible, um, and in such a way that, um, to, to piggyback on what you just said, makes dialogue and conversation pretty easy with other people because we can understand them 
fairly easily because we're, we have uh, a lot in common if we are living to our full capacity as rational animals. Um, and that can get um, played out in, in politics and economics and, and different aspects of life. What does it mean to be a rational human being? Well, clearly it means that we must have this particular system of government and so on and so forth. And if you're not there, you're just, you know, you haven't advanced to a certain level. And there's a kind of, typically with modernity too, um, there's a view of history as very progressive. We're moving forward because we're advancing in our knowledge and understanding and mastery of um, the earth uh, industrially with science, with uh, technology and all the rest. Um, so, and those are some aspects of it. And um, I think you could say much more about it, but with, with post-modernity then there's, there's a recognition that this project has significant limitations if it hasn't totally failed. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it's a more re regressive outlook on, it can get any even kind of doomsday-ish where we start saying, you know, when, when are we going to destroy the planet? But, but looking at the mistakes and the, um, you know, the, uh, the negative outcomes of modernity, some of um, the things that have happened in the 20th century, especially as a result of what we thought were advancements uh, in civilization, we can now say, gosh, we really didn't understand ourselves or each other as well as we thought. You know, a lot of these big stories we used to believe in have been called into question and undermined both by good critical theory and by our experience. So now we don't have um, one main sort of set of values or universal truths or ethical maxims that we can trust in for, for our life. Uh, instead, we just have our differences to appreciate and, and uh, never fully understand. Um, in fact, uh, postmodern you know, post philosophy wants to talk a lot about not just the irreducibility of our differences, but even the incommensurability of our differences. I can't understand the other, and to, and, and to do so, or to presume to be able to speak for the other, is to do violence to them, to oppress them. And so, uh, because we've recognized the limits of our knowledge and of any kind of claim to authority um, epistemologically, the, the reaction is to uh, turn away from anything that would maybe bring us together uh, in terms of the narrative or religion or, or politics because of the dangers and the risks that are there. Does that make sense? No, ab absolutely. And, and I think that when we talk about epistemology or our theory of knowing or how we know, um, that, that led me to um, your, um, you know, you, you were, I think, quoting uh, Rosa Maria Rodriguez Magda and, and, or referencing her, and you said if modernity was guilty of logocentrism, condescension, normalization, and universal universalization by way of trying to smooth out differences, then postmodernity has been prone to paralyze constructive politics in the name of heterogeneity, multiculturalism, and pluralism. I just think the current discourse illustrates that. Yeah, and specifically with reference to the events on Sunday. Even. Yes. Uh, yeah, I can really, I can really see that. Gosh. And um, this is where I'm sure psychoanalysis could help us out a little bit too. Um, but definitely, you know, I, I read something recently too, um, a blog post, I can't remember where, about how when you check your Facebook feed right now, chances are because of what you've liked, because of who your friends are and so on, 
it's already uh, filtered it for you in such a way that you're going to get articles that uh, you agree with and that you want to read and, and not the ones that you don't. Um, so how much more so are we getting entrenched in our you know, polarized understanding of the world on the left and the right? Or just, you know, you talk about these different identities um, and identity politics, uh, like whether you're looking at LGBTQ communities and interests versus um, African-American and Latino or whatever it might be, um, you know, Muslim versus Christian and so forth. And um, these these groups are, uh, because of the fear and because of the suffering and misunderstanding and violence that's going on, um, we create cul-de-sacs and they can't talk to each other. And that's, that is a postmodern phenomenon, I think. Yeah, I, I I just watched I watched a few threads go really wonky, you know, when someone was presuming that they would be able to have a conversation on Facebook, and I'm pretty sure the algorithm you reference uh, is occasionally defied when friends who disagree will have liked something, and then something comes up in their, their, you know, their feed that they're just going like, I can't believe he or she posted that thing again. And, and, uh, and, and so then they start interacting and they forget that they're never going to convince each other because they have their, they are in cul-de-sacs. They are, and they are at places where the polarity is just too great. And because we've, um, hunkered down in in kind of a more siloed sort of event um there's really more talking past not talking to conversation just summarily breaks down and i think from a practical standpoint and when it, you know now we kind of maybe shift back to thinking about what we can how we can look at political theology as a subversive way to undermine that now you have a role as a pastor. Uh, I have a role. Those listening have a role. Now, what are the what are the constructive ways? I mean, there's always the acidic approach. You know, I can come in and just toss you know toss something. It, it trace maybe back to modernity and say, okay, we can all agree on this one thing, and now everybody shut up. You know, kind of thing. But but that doesn't really but it really doesn't move us forward in community with with the appreciation of difference because really what we're trying to do is collapse all difference. And, and so what, what is, you found something or you're proposing a way, I think beyond that, um, for communities, for, um, uh, resisting the powers, if you will, and, and that sort of thing. What, what's, what's a suggestion you, you might have? Well, just yeah, speaking pastorally and in terms of the local church context and, and inroads to constructive dialogue and, and common ground that can be found, you know, I just taught a Sunday morning class this past spring called The Politics of Jesus, with no necessary reference to Yoder there, but just as a good title for a class during this heated, you know, primary season. Right. And, and looking at the biblical narrative, and, and when, it's funny how when you let the Bible do, I think Brian Zahn said this once, um, pastor and author that I, that I like, he, he says, let the Bible do the heavy lifting and you'd be amazed, you know, how far you were, where you can take people. Um, I think that's right. When you, when you begin a conversation about politics, not by saying, what do you think about this or that candidate or, you know, how do you feel about this issue? But start with, okay, what's the biblical story? 
And what does Jesus tell us about our relationship to our neighbors, mm-hmm. um, especially those neighbors who are very different from us? And you look at the Bible and you see these radically different groups um, that Jesus engages with and the way he dignifies these people, everyone from a Roman centurion to a Samaritan um, to a prostitute, whoever it might be, um, some outcasted figure in society. And you see him saying things like, you know, this person is is more faithful or, or this person, uh, you know, obeyed the law of God more than the, uh, the Pharisee or the priest or whoever. And it really starts to break down these barriers. Now, it, it's offensive. It's disruptive. It'll, it'll make some people probably get up and scream and walk away. But but because we, uh, you and I both, I think, are in congregational settings where there is still this submission to the authority of Scripture, uh, people do listen to Jesus. And uh, when, he, when he says to love your enemies— um, we have to at least try to kind of take that seriously and right. see where where it will lead us um, when we ask, well, who are your political enemies? You know, how can you understand them? And political theology for me is uh, starting at the most basic common level of uh, human engagement, which has to do with the fact that we're both human and we have these basic needs. And um, if if God created everyone, everyone and we're made in the image of God, then I have to at least care. I don't have to agree with anything you believe, but I have to at least care about um, your your well-being. And uh, maybe we can talk about um, a social arrangement where uh, both of those, both your interests and mine, materially speaking, are are protected and considered. Um, and, and for me as a Christian, I do that out of uh, the love of Christ that compels me, but I don't do it because I think you're right about anything. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Good starting point. Yeah, you um, you you mentioned. Uh, I was talking to one of our one of our staff guys. He said, "Hey, you got an interview today." I said, "Yeah, I've been looking forward to this one for a while." And um, and I tried to describe really simply um, the move you make to point people to just what you described was Zond. So I'm going to try to see if I can summarize this and, and then let you go with it a minute. Um, so if, if we let the story do its work, the story of God and Jesus that we find in scripture, uh, do its work. Um, we are, you, uh, reference a resource that you came across that emphasized beauty. So that then becomes a, a, an aesthetic appeal so that when you start talking about a, an arrangement where while we may be uh, disagreeing um, I, in terms of our ideas, we want to figure out how our, our persons are protected. I don't know who couldn't imagine that as a beautiful thing. Yeah. So, so beauty then becomes a vehicle to move us out of those cul-de-sacs, out of those silos. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I don't think that material common ground is enough <laughs> to, to unite us. There, does, there has to be something else, too. And yeah, the beauty you talk about, um, when I say beauty theologically, and, and the, the people that have influenced me that talk about this and their work, um, it's not 
it's not the kind of beauty necessarily that you go out and you see in nature or even in a great painting. I mean, that, that is beautiful and, and that's the starting point, but um, the beauty in particular for Christians that is so um, attractive, potentially we believe, I would say even universally attractive, um, is the beauty of, of suffering love or sacrificial love. And so if, if we are willing to give up something we prefer or we want for the sake of another, um, there's something uh, that, that draws me to that kind of life and um, that's very admirable and that um, I, want, I want something of that. I want to be part of that. And even though that's a counterintuitive notion because it's not self-interested, but maybe there's something in us as human beings that um, we might be able to recognize a longing for that only gets satisfied when we're, when we're part of that kind of life and, and Jesus demonstrates that life. So there's a beauty to the, to the cross above all in Christianity of, of God's own suffering love for the sake of the world um, that would rather uh, die than see us destroy ourselves. Um, and that, that picture um, that, that seems to have really cut across so many cultural, uh, temporal, and political boundaries uh, has a beauty to it that I, that I think has a planetary reach. It's not just, um, you know, Western, or it's not just... Um, you know, monotheistic, but it even it even goes beyond that. So that's one way I understand beauty and aesthetics in general. A, a kind of a kind of life that is not an argument. You know, it's not a rational or empirical thing. Uh, it is more intuitive than that. It's spiritual. It taps into the senses of, um, the, you know, the eyes of faith. Scripture talks about it. Um, the eyes of the heart, and uh, I believe it's something that many people, uh, you know, will have and and be interested in. Yeah, and and I think from there, it, it it seems easier to me to see that as performative, and I don't mean performative in the sense of performance or performing, but that's something that can get enacted or embodied. It's not just cerebral. It's not just. It's not just. It's like this intellectual game you and I are having here today on Skype. It actually has some tactile, um, real, what we call material expressions that that now become kind of that that public witness or public testimony to God's good work in the world. Yes, it's incarnational too. Yep. Um, you know, God breaks in and, and enters into our experience in this concrete and tangible, visible way. Um, that isn't just words on a page, um, nor even is it an invisible spiritual reality, though it is both of those things, but um, it is, is a physical practice um, that can be imitated, um, that can be learned and, and engaged in at, at the communal level. So uh, immediately becomes bigger than any individual act. And uh, you know, I, I can't think of or talk about political theology without also doing ecclesiology. And right. uh, that, that's something that's a little bit new, I think, actually, for, for political theology um, in, in the last century or so, um, is to do it. As we move into a less and less Christian society, it becomes all the more unavoidable to do theology without doing it from, you know, a church church standpoint. Yeah, I, th- I think probably one of the other things that between that presentation and what I've read of your, of your uh, dissertation and our conversations— um, back in November, I, th- I think that 
um, we are probably going to have to nuance what we mean by church. Uh, if we're, and, and what I mean by that is if we're moving out of, and I think we already, and, and I've seen you writing about it, so um, since you're my authority now, um, I, we've moved out of Christendom. And so as such, um, there's going to have to be a concerted effort of what we mean by church if in Christendom church meant another thing. And or or maybe a better way to put it is if the church had a particular role in a different structure or system, we are going to have to do some hard work as pastors to describe that there's nothing to be afraid of when we move into this new space, this new location. And um, and, I, and I think that that's really kind of what I mean by a, a, a different definition, not you know, not going all crazy, but but we're going to have to infuse it with maybe some things that have always been present but not emphasized. Is that what do you think? I think, I think you're on something there. We've been able to take for granted for so long as Christians in, in the Euro-American Western context uh, the recognition of ourselves as Christians, the, the ability to appeal to our identity and our label as Christian because of the institutional backing because of the familiarity with uh, the biblical story or the scriptures and the tradition and the visible role that the church has played in society, even, even after, uh, the, you know, the so-called separation of, of church and state. But I think now, um, as that fades even more and more, and as uh, even just with the rise of the influence and um, significance of nonprofit organizations and NGOs and people doing all kinds of good work, for reasons other than their Christian convictions in society. Right. Uh, we're going to have to, because uh, I'm tempted to say we should be defined by our practices. Yes. Uh, but I think, I think even that is uh, not enough. <laughs> and then it also has to be our, our message, our, what, what is our hope? You know, it is our practices, of course, our communal practices and the way we do relate to power in the world, the way we organize power in our own uh, communities, um, is it hierarchical? Is it top-down? Or is it uh, led by the Spirit in a kind of mutually submitted way based on gifts and so on? And then uh, what is what is it that organize? What is it that we're centered around? Um, and if we can express the gospel in a way that names those things that, that bring us together um, because of the good news of, of the grace of God that we know in Jesus, I believe we still have something you know, utterly important and uh, that can be made visible and that will be appealing to people, even in a world where we're not recognized the way we traditionally were. And that could be a good thing, <laughs> given the history that we come from in people's minds. I think, I think it's a very good thing. And it really points to the way we ought to be paying attention to, in some sense, come full circle from something we began with. And that is, if we gain an appreciation for the context out of which, for instance, liberation theology emerged, and we are able to grasp the idea of what the what or who were those on the underside of history, that what we seem to be more trying to do is to hold on to the fact we're slipping into that underside ourselves when it's really that location out of which we should have always probably been identifying in the first place. Uh, that's, that's profound, really. Um, there is an authority. 
there is an epistemological authority to the underside of history. <laughs> when you are coming from uh, the outside, from the marginalized, marginalized position, um, there's there's a kind of purity to your voice um, when you truly are in solidarity with um, the poor and the oppressed and those who, um, you know, as I was about to quote Marx, you know, nothing to lose but their, their chains. Um, it, it, people uh, are moved by that, even when um, it can also get you know, romanticized or something. And of course, people of privilege are always at risk of doing that. Um, but I think the history that we come from, what we're doing when we, when we say that um, that God has a preferential option for the poor. It's not to say that God wants us to be poor. You know, it, it's, I think, um, has something more to do with uh, the fact that uh, it's, it's, it's calling out our true spiritual reality as dependent on God. And so it invites us into a genuine posture of repentance and humility and responsibility for um, an implication in the suffering of the world and, and the violence that's going around all the time. You know, I just said this morning, our staff meeting, we were trying to just kind of spend some time lamenting um, what happened in Orlando and ask, yeah, we feel so distant from this. How can this person have done this or whatever? But what ways are we part of this problem? You know, what ways do we need to be a church of repentance that, that uh, bears the pain and feels the pain of this loss because the same sin in that person's heart who was the shooter is in our hearts, um, however much we might feel like we would never have done that. And so I think just political theology opens our eyes to the ways that we're part of a society that's uh, been uh, propagating and, and, and uh, participating in this cycle of violence all around the globe because of forces that are so big and beyond ourselves, but that we still uh, benefit from or, or even um, implicitly support. Um, and when we when we uh, enter into um, solidarity and neighborliness with the people on the other side, we're trying to resist that. We're trying to repent of that and let them teach us about our own dependence on God and our own helplessness and powerlessness to fully resist violence. So let's let's be on a journey of learning the ways that we are caught up in it and how can we um, resist it more together. And we just can't do that when the only people around us are like us. We have to have I mean, the poor are like the, the best um, mirror for ourselves that <laughs> show us our, our blind spots. Yeah, and it really gets to um, kind of one of the ways you concluded a recent article that it forces us to expand our understanding of what uh, the declaration of the gospel does, or to use the language that we would both be probably more familiar with, we talk about what does salvation mean? So that if we can see ourselves, if the poor are a mirror to us, all the more we need to be looking for ways that those chains are removed. We're liberated from those shackles. And and our problem really tends to be we're not like them. We don't have any. And political theology, as you uh, rightly described, I think, uh, exposes ways where we actually are participating. In fact, we're probably in greater shackles um, that uh, because we're just unaware. You talked about having a period of lament. I thought for two days how to respond without sounding um, 
trite or um, insensitive to what went on in Orlando. And and I I, I posted a, a comment, and a friend of mine called me and and said, "Well, are you saying this?" And I said, uh, "Are you saying this this one pastor who?" you know, really showed a great deal of insensitivity and, and basically said some things I'm not willing to repeat even on this interview, um, uh, characterizes all Christian pastors. And I said, no, I said, but, um, what really happened to me in thinking about that is if I've not been actively participating in some way against the things that that represents, then my complicity in that is one way that I've actually been held captive to whether it's an ideology or or it's or it's a socialization or it's a system that I feel sort of privileged in and don't bother me with uh, any sort of kind of shift or change. And so I, I'd like to have been in your lament session because it, it was one of those things where you're saying to yourself, you know, I, I I'm not always terribly vocal in maybe the ways that I ought to be vocal. Um, and, and in so doing, I could actually, by not speaking, give the impression that all of that system is okay. And we, gosh, we fear so much. I fear so much, um, the effect of my vocalization. <laughs> will I, who will I alienate? Um, who will I lose credibility with if I speak my mind and speak the truth that I wish that you know, in the way that I feel God calls me to or how I'm convicted about something. Um, but I think that's just, it's almost like speaking the truth. We get held accountable to it by whether we are embodying the truth at the same time, because the people that truly know us, um, and those are the mainly the people we need to be speaking to anyway, <laughs> you know, who we've lived with, who, who've walked with us, they're going to have enough trust, presumably. And, and, you know, decency to, to give us the benefit of the doubt, at least enough to maybe have a conversation in more cases than we might expect. And I get surprised by that all the time. That's excellent. Uh, in, in, I, I, in my conversation with Adam Clark, uh, I pointed back to something uh, Dr. Um, uh, B, Barbara Holmes said, when she was trying to help a group understand that my church, my Anglo middle class suburban church doesn't need me to invite her to come speak to them. But my church needs me to speak to them out of the places where I have been uh, complicit and participating in all the ways that she wants to tell the stories of liberation and freedom from. That's that you 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 give the other side of, of that in such a powerful way because I also often wonder who will I alienate when I say what I'm really thinking. So it's not that someone is, you know, it's not that I'm necessarily worried about what I'm thinking. It's that there is a way of saying it that actually can be counterproductive why why are you saying that? Exactly. So often it's because we're frustrated by the cognitive dissonance and the lack of understanding, and we just want people to see things the way we see them, and it's not coming from a place of genuine love or concern about it. Exactly right. Yeah. 
Wow. Okay. Well, I'm probably ruined for the rest of the day now. Um, <laughs> no, it's been it's been a great conversation. Yeah, it has. Um, and I do really want to get you back on seriously and take maybe a little bit more um, into a couple of your sources that that um, you know maybe talk about Balthazar and Dussel, um a, a little bit more, and then kind of get to something you referenced. And so for those who are listening, uh, when Bill and I get back together and and talk about this, we we really will. Uh, trace down kind of this constructive proposal about uh, neighborliness and resistance and get into some of that ecclesiological political theology that um, uh, Bill really, I think, has in heart. So if you uh, were interested in um, reading some of the things uh, Bill writes, uh, go over and uh, go over to Missio Alliance and a number of articles Bill's written there just... uh, uh, like right now, there's one on the front page, and in, in, in the search box, just type his name, and, and several others will come up. Bill, where else can someone maybe read some of the things you're writing? Well, yeah, I, I have a blog and a website that is currently getting improved, and I hope it's going to be up uh, in the next week or so. But that's at wawalker.com, and I, I tend to house old um, essays and uh, articles, presentations I've made. There's some audio content there. I post sermon manuscripts and sometimes we'll repost over the Missio Alliance uh, articles too. So that's a great place. I'm on academia.edu. I'm on Twitter at bwalkerIII. Um, and I would love to have uh, one of these things, especially the dissertation, uh, you know, prepared for publication soon. So I'll, I'll keep you updated on that. Yeah, do. I, I, you know, the the one thing that's invigorating to me, um, and so I want you to know, I you know, getting to meet you and and Adam and Tripp and some of those guys has been really really encouraging. Um, because for a period of time, when I started kind of reading these things on my own, I, I didn't really know anybody that was at the place in their life where they could kind of that's what they were doing in in their seminary and the graduate and postgraduate work, and. I'm just an old dog. And so it's really helpful when, you know, I can I can hopefully not just for me, but maybe those who be listening kind of unearth some of these gems that will be helpful because things are different than they used to be. And the context of doing what we do is different than it used to be. And I was trained in a completely kind of different model. And, and you, you kind of if you're not going to keep at it and keep learning, um, you probably should go sell cars. Um, and, and so um, I, I appreciate what you're doing, and uh, I look forward to, to getting together and chatting again. Thank you, Todd. Well, I'm very grateful for your work and love the podcast. And just appreciate you inviting me on and taking the time to, to talk. Well, fantastic. Well, um, I'll, I'll uh, ping you here in, in uh, maybe a month or month and a half. We'll let this one sit for a while, and, and then... Uh, I'll get through the dissertation and we'll we'll get back on and do this again. Deal? Sounds great. Love it. All right, man. Well, I certainly appreciate it. Thanks, Todd. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. Remember, this is a first part of uh, a conversation we're going to have with Bill Walker. So do me a favor. on Go over to the blog post uh, for this particular podcast at toddleton.net. And leave a comment, question, thought, reflection, something that we can use when we have Bill back on, uh, and, and let's let's put our heads together. What are some things that we'd want to talk to Bill about related to political theology and pastoring? 
Uh, one, I also want you to know you can follow Pathological on Twitter at Pathological, or you can follow me at uh, Littleton Todd, and you'll uh, find uh, resources. Hopefully, we'll point to some as well as to when podcasts go live and, and maybe some other blog posts along the way. I um, want you to know that uh, Pathological is a part, an affiliate podcast with Roundtable Media Group, and uh, we have a, a number of uh, podcasts there. And if you're interested in advertising with us, uh, shoot me an email at todd at roundtablemediagroup.com, and you could uh, advertise across all of our podcasts, one of our podcasts, this podcast. We're just trying to um, make up for some of the incidentals that go into uh, producing the podcast and some of those other expenses along the way. I want to thank you for listening and hope that um, you'll find this podcast helpful and you'll share it. So until next time, uh, peace. Peace.